please stand for the reading of God's word. Deuteronomy 7, 1 through 6. When the Lord your God brings you into the land you are entering to possess and drives out before you many nations, the Hittites, Girgashites, Amorites, Canaanites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites, seven nations larger and stronger than you. And when the Lord your God has delivered them over to you and you have defeated them, then you must destroy them totally, make no treaty with them, and show them no mercy. Do not intermarry with them. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons, for they will turn your children away from following me to serve other gods, and the Lord's anger will burn against you and will quickly destroy you. This is what you are to do to them. Break down their altars, smash their sacred stones, cut down their Asherah poles, and burn their idols in the fire. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all his peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. This is the word of the Lord. Well, those were uh, some warm, uplifting inspiring words from scripture, right? Uh, that, actually, that's the Kunkel family verse right there. We, that's our theme verse for our family. Um, no, I just, I just I want to publicly thank Dave for leaving town on this week. And he's in Maui somewhere right now. He's probably sipping a Mai Tai, right, um, on the beach. Well, yeah, okay. All right, so it's eight. He's probably not sipping a Mai Tai. Or we have some problems as, as a church. Um, but thanks, Dave, for uh, letting me take this one. Um, actually, I volunteered for this one because I think it, is a, it, it presents to us a real challenge, right? Because we, we hear this depiction of uh, God in the Old Testament, and we're like, I like that Jesus guy a lot better, right? <laughs> hey, give me Jesus, that dude in the Old Testament, he probably needs some therapy. You know, I, 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 don't, I don't really like that, that picture of God. And um, so this actually turns out to be a, an objection that, that skeptics of Christianity will, will hold on to and actually launch as a challenge to the Christian faith. In fact, uh, Richard Dawkins, maybe the most famous atheist in the world, uh, definitely one who attracts probably the most attention. He wrote a book called The God Delusion. And in that book, this is the most famous line of that book. He says this. He says, the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Jealous and proud of it. A petty, unjust, unforgiving control freak. A vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser. A misogynistic, homophobic, racist, infanticidal, genocidal, filicidal, pestilential, megalomaniacal, sadomasochistic, capriciously malevolent bully. Right? Yeah. And you're thinking, okay, hey, how do you really feel, right, Richard? Um, 
But what he's arguing here is he's saying, look, the God of the Old Testament is this evil character. All right. Now, before we... um, Before the skeptic can even raise this objection, though, I think it's important for you and I to understand that there have to be other ideas in place for the skeptic to even raise this objection. Namely, that there is some objective moral framework by which he's measuring whether or not God is evil. And so what's interesting is uh, he's, you know, he's a, he's a, uh, New York Times best-selling author, written a number of books. Before he ever wrote The God Delusion, he wrote uh, River Out of Eden, which lays out his evolutionary views on the universe. He's a famous Oxford biologist. And uh, in that book, he says this. He says, in a universe of electrons and selfish genes, blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt. Other people are going to get lucky. And you won't find any rhyme or reason in it nor any justice. The universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, and no good. Nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. Now, do you see the the problem for Richard Dawkins? He holds a view of the universe that does not generate any objective morality. For him, in his universe, it's Simply, it's, it's simply reduced to blind, pitiless indifference. There's no objective standards. So what that does is his own atheistic views undermine his ability to even raise the objection that God is evil because he has no standard of goodness by which to measure what counts as evil and what doesn't. And so the, here's an illustration to help you maybe understand this. Okay, imagine playing a, a, an organized sport. I played Soccer, I love soccer, but imagine playing a game where there are no rules. You show up, there are no rules, the ref blows the whistle, the game starts, and what's going to happen? It's going to be a free-for-all, right? Uh, And some of us, I remember playing games with no rules. We called it jungle ball, right? Jungle ball. And uh, uh, if you have a game where there are no rules, what happens when someone takes you out and you, make, you try to make an appeal to the referee? Yeah. No, because in a game where there are no rules, guess what? There are no fouls. In the same way, in a universe where there are no rules, it's nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. There are no fouls. There's no such thing as evil. So I think it's important at the get-go to understand that this is what the, 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 the skeptic needs in place to even raise the issue. But that presents another problem. One of the unique missions experiences that we do, in fact, on Wednesday, we just got back with Grace's high school group. We took them on one of uh, Maven's immersive experiences. Uh, but one of them we do is a, uh, an apologetics immersive experience where we take students, we do training, and then we take high school, college students to uh, Berkeley, California, and... Uh, which just the name draws laughter. Um, we go to Berkeley, and what we do is we, we, we invite skeptics of Christianity to come challenge the student's faith. 
And so a couple of uh, the atheists that we had are the very first year we did this with these two guys, David Fitzgerald and, and Larry Hickok. And David has actually become a friend. We've been doing this together now for years and years and years. And uh, he's just entrenched uh, in his views on atheism. But I remember the very first year that, that he talked, one of his objections against Christianity was that the, uh, the God of the Old Testament commands the Israelites to do these horrible things, and they do all these horrible things. And so this was, this was problematic in his view and one of the, the strikes against the Christian worldview. And so in the Q&A time, I asked David a question. I said, David, um, what is your view on morality? Is morality objective and kind of transcends culture? Or is morality subjective? Is it determined by culture? And he said, oh, morality is determined by cultures. Each culture determines its own moral views. Well, I said, David, if that's your view, that seems to surface an inconsistency then, doesn't it? You're a 21st century American, and you're looking back on an ancient Israeli culture, and you're making moral judgments about what they did. Isn't that inconsistent? And he, uh, to his credit, he, he was able to see the problems with that. And he said, okay, yeah, yeah, that, that is problematic. And he, he said, well, I guess morality mu- seems to be, I guess, objective in some way, which I then threw back over at Larry and said, Larry, what's your view on that? And Larry was like, no, 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 it's objective. Uh, because he knows that it, when you hold an objective view of morality, a transcendent view of morality, th- then what's the natural question? Where does that come from? What explains that? In fact, C.S. Lewis, a former atheist turned uh, Christian, said that was one of the, the big objections he struggled with. My argument against God was that the universe seemed to be cruel and unjust. But how had I got this idea of just and unjust A man does not call a line crooked unless he has some idea of a straight line. What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? And even a secular philosopher, a very good philosopher, Richard Taylor, um, who's not a believer, recognizes this problem for someone who doesn't hold a view of God. He says this. He says a duty, a moral duty, is something that is owed. But something can be owed only to some person or persons. There can be no such thing as a duty in isolation. The concept of moral obligation is unintelligible apart from the idea of God. How do you make sense of a moral obligation? Do I have a moral obligation to the processes of evolution? No, it's just blind, pitiless indifference. And so I think from the get-go, look, every worldview is going to have challenges. And just because the skeptic can throw this out as a challenge to us doesn't mean that it actually doesn't raise additional challenges for the skeptic. And so I think that's important to note here, is that, in or, that, that, that actually to raise the objection implies the Christian view of God. Okay, so, but we want to deal with the specifics of the passage. So we get to the specific passage that we're, we've read here. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. Now, Okay, let's kind of hone in on the problem. Like, what's the problem here? Okay, we, well, we read a passage like this. It, it certainly maybe offends some of our modern sensibilities. Or maybe we think this is, it, maybe it goes further than that. We go, this is somehow inconsistent with a God of love. Okay, that, w- that, that would be a challenge. Um, but at the end of the day, I think the important question to ask, to, to really help us put the right perspective is, okay, what follows from this challenge? 
what follows. So let's say this somehow shows an inconsistency in the biblical record or this maybe we, we come to the conclusion that this is just made up material that was put in by you know, uh, Hebrew authors. If, if we arrive at something like that, um, what follows from that? Does it follow that therefore God does not exist? Well, no. Does it follow that Jesus did not rise from the dead? No, that doesn't follow from this objection. What would follow is that God couldn't have issued some kind of command like this. Biblical stories must be false. So what would follow from this, even if we granted kind of the skeptical challenge, it will, the, the question would be about biblical inerrancy. That's all that would follow is that, well, somehow we've undermined biblical inerrancy, which isn't, is an important issue, but it's not essential to making the case that Christianity is true. I mean, that's the, I, I think one of the things about, now I think, just so you know, I think uh, there's a case to be made for biblical errancy. I hold that, and I think it's a significant doctrine. But the point is, I can grant the skeptic that, hey, even if the Bible is errant, it does not mean that God does not exist and that he did not reveal himself in Christ and that he did not raise Christ from the dead. Those things can all still be true, even if you undermine biblical errancy. So, um, uh, really, this is an objection and a problem for biblical inerrancy. So it doesn't, it's not this devastating critique of Christianity that sometimes I think skeptics think it is. And sometimes Christians who are unprepared think it is. So I want to, it's important for us to put it in its proper context in terms of the nature of this objection. Okay. So, but we want to, we want to deal with the, the, the passage. And, in, and I think... Before even dealing with the passage, there's another thing that we need to ask. We need to ask, what are the assumptions that we're coming to this text with? Okay? Um, We don't come to the reading of Scripture, uh, we don't come to the text as a blank slate, do we? We bring all of these cultural assumptions, all these background beliefs, these cultural ideas to the table... And that colors the way that we see and read Scripture and even how we hear it. Our cultural ideas, our background beliefs, frame Scripture for us. They frame and therefore uh, uh, affect how we hear this. And it, it, it creates... So we come to a passage like this, and for some of us, maybe we look at this and we go, man, this just seems implausible. This, this, does, this, this doesn't fit. But that might be not because there's a problem with the passage, but maybe you and I, just maybe, we bring in these cultural ideas and assumptions that make it, that don't fit with our cultural assumptions. So that's something we need to think about here as well. In fact, think about it. Uh, Context is so important, isn't it, to understanding really anything. And so what we want to do, and what I would ask a a skeptic who raises this as a problem for Christianity, my first question to them would be, Tell me, what is the historical context of Deuteronomy 7? And what I found is that most skeptics will not really be able to give much of an answer to that. Because it's kind of cherry-picked, but there's, never, there's not really a fair hearing that's offered. Uh, now think about, think about a situation where maybe someone says something about you to other people. And that kind of gets spread around, and, and, and judgments are made, and nobody comes to you and asks for your side of the story. And then it, as these things happen, they, you hear word of this, it comes back to you, hear it, and you're like, wait a second, that's not fair, right? 
I didn't get to tell my side of the story. I didn't, give to give, I didn't get the chance to give proper context to this so that someone might understand and see it completely differently. Or think about parenting. Like if we took one little episode of your parenting and judged you off of that one episode, right? Would that be fair? Like last week, I mean, I, I, I was pretty frustrated with our, our seven-year-old Jonah. And if you would have seen me in, in certain moments... And seeing me, you know, raise my voice, lecture him, put him in timeout, right? All in righteous anger, of course. <laughs> but if you looked at that one small moment, you could have looked at that and gone, man, Brett's kind of a jerk, right? What a harsh, mean, cruel father. But then, of course, that wouldn't be fair, would it? If, we, if, I, if I said, well, no, there's context here. You know, that issue that that he got the lecture on and got put in time out for, I had actually talked to him three times prior in 10 minutes about that same thing, right? But you also would need to put that in the context of the warm relationship I have with him. You don't, you got to put that in the context of every night I, go, I, I put him to bed and I, I read to him and we snuggle and we hug and every morning he gets up and first thing he does is hugs me. And there's a larger context. And when you see all of that, it takes that one little piece and puts it in proper perspective, right? In the same way, just like a puzzle piece. You look at one puzzle piece, you can't make sense of it. You've got to put it into the larger context of the whole puzzle. And then that helps you to see how this thing is coherent and makes sense. And so that's what we're trying to do here. And so we want to look at the historical context. And in the historical context, there's sub-questions, the moral context, the literary context, the redemptive context. Okay. So, all right, all that's kind of preliminary stuff that is important for us to think about. So let's look at the context now. What context? The context of the ancient Near East. This is the historical context in which Israel is located in. And so when we look at the ancient Near East, there's something very important. One, one key observation you need to know about the ancient Near East, okay? It's not Orange County, California, all right? Let's just be clear. Two completely different worlds. And, I mean, that's, that's humorous, but it's also really serious. Because we come with our Orange County cultural assumptions, and we bring those to bear on the judgments we make about Scripture or about God's action. And what we might need to do is suspend those for a second and get into the actual historical context so that we can understand that better and better interpret a passage like Deuteronomy 7. So when we look at the ancient Near East, what are we talking about? Well, we're talking about um, kind of the region of early civilizations that roughly correspond with the modern Middle East. So Iran... Uh, Egypt, um, uh, Turkey, Iraq, uh, Syria, Lebanon, Palestine, Israel, Jordan, kind of these areas. And what we discover is that when we look at that world, it's, it's radically different. In fact, here's an artifact from the ancient Near East. This artifact is called the Standard of Ur, right, from the, the city of Ur. It's, uh, it, it, it depicts war and peace. But I, I put that up there just to help get us in touch with the fact that the ancient Near East is a foreign culture to us, right? You look at that, and that, just the artifact from that culture is foreign. You look at that, that's foreign to your culture and my culture. To help us get a taste for how uh, the, the, the ancient Near East 
their cultures, their values, their lifestyle would be completely foreign to us. And so sometimes maybe we're reacting negatively based upon our cultural assumptions. Okay, so when we look at this foreign culture, when we look at the culture in which Israel finds itself in, what do we discover? Well, before we get into that, let me just put a little warning up here, okay? Probably the next 10 minutes are, are somewhat uh, R-rated, okay? Um, uh, we're going to talk specifically about Canaanite culture. And in order to understand the context in which Israel is in, I think it's important for us to understand the depth of Canaanite depravity, the depth of Canaanite wickedness. And so the main source I'm using on this is a really great uh, uh, article that was written by a, a Biola professor. His name is Clay Jones. Uh, it was in a philosophical journal called Philosophia Christi. And here's the title of the article. In fact, I'll tell you at the end of the talk where you can get this article and read it for yourself. But the article is entitled, We Don't Hate Sin, So We Don't Understand What Happened to the Canaanites. And in this article, Clay Jones lays out for us a really vivid picture of Canaanite culture and what that entailed. So let me go through uh, his characterization. So number one, Canaanite culture was idolatrous. And in fact, this is where we have to suspend kind of our modern views about religion and idolatry and really think about what that meant for them back in, in, in the time of the Canaanites. See, Canaanite culture didn't just like worship other gods and idols, come, kind of like it's like a, 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 a kind of a private little hobby, right? That's how Americans approach religion. It's kind of our private hobby. We do that thing. We'll do that on Sunday. We'll do the church activity, but it's kind of divorced from much of our life. It's this individualistic private hobby. Not so for Canaanite culture. Uh, it was part of their very cultural identity, their idolatry, their gods. It formed their way of life. In fact, what a culture worships has profound and pervasive social consequences. What a culture worships will get played out in how it lives, whether it's Canaanite culture or whether it's American culture. Okay, And so they were idolatrous. Um, and the kinds of idols, the kinds of gods they worship played into their activity. And so secondly, they were adulterous. And uh, Canaanite religion, like that of almost all ancient Near East religions, was a fertility religion that tied sexual eroticism to all kinds of things, particularly to successful uh, agriculture cycles of planting and harvesting. So that if you did certain things, you please the gods, you would be rewarded with crops and plants. And so things like temple prostitution, ceremonial group sex, uh, adultery, which was condoned for men, but typically not for women, uh, pederasty, which is uh, men with young boys. Uh, these are some of the examples of the kinds of sexual perversions that were being not just practiced, but celebrated and an essential part of their religious views. And so it was adulterous. adulterous. It was also incestuous. Um, I want to read to you a little description out of Clay Jones's article about this that ties it again to the gods. He says this in that article. He says, like all ancient Near East pantheons, the Canaanite pantheon was incestuous. The god El, considered the father of the gods, had 70 children by Asherah. 
From that union came Baal and his sister Anat, with whom Baal had sexual relations. After Baal reported to his father El that Asherah, his mother, had tried to seduce him, El encouraged Baal to have sex with her to humiliate her, which Baal did. Baal also had as a consort, which is a companion or spouse, his first daughter, Pidre. So this is a picture of the, 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 the gods that they worship and the incest that's going on in their gods. And this was also practiced in the, amongst the Canaanite people. Um, and think about it. Think about uh, Genesis chapter 19 when Lot and his family flee Sodom and Gomorrah. What happens immediately after they, f- they flee that Canaanite city? Right? Lot's daughters get their father drunk and they seduce him and they have sex with him and and have children. Uh, This imitates the sexual practices from the city that they just left that was annihilated. Right? And so this was part of Canaanite culture. Uh, Bestiality was part of Canaanite culture. Sex with animals. And there's really, there's nothing else I need to say. I don't need to depict this one, right? That's enough said. Uh, not only was there all kinds of sexual perversion and wickedness, but there was also violence. Violence was just part of Canaanite culture. Violence and war were just a fact of life for them. Radically different than, you know, pretty much safe, law and order, Orange County. Right, where we, we, we have the authorities that we can, we can trust in. Uh, we've got uh, relative safety. Where I don't know about you, but I'm not walking around Orange County worrying about my life or worrying about warring with my neighbors all the time. But this was a way of life in the ancient Near East. Cruelty was the norm. In fact, this again is tied back to the kinds of gods they worshipped. So Anath, uh, the violent war goddess, who's a sister of Baal, um, uh, there's a fragmentary passage in a, it's called a Ugaritic text, which is just referring to an area of Canaan uh, that was found in 1928. It, it has this fragment, fragmentary passage about Anat and, uh, and a massacre that she was involved with, involved with. And archaeologist William Albright describes that passage, that massacre, this way. Uh, he says, the blood was so deep that she waded in it up to her knees, nay, up to her neck. Under her feet were human heads. Above her human hands flew like locusts. In her sensuous delight, she decorated herself with suspended heads while she attached hands to her girdle. Her joy at the butchery is described in even more sadistic language. Her liver swelled with laughter. Her heart was full of joy. The liver of Anath was full of exaltation. Afterwards, Anath was satisfied and washed her hands in human gore before proceeding to other occupations. And you read something like that, and it sounds kind of like a horror movie, right? But this was the culture. This was the God that they worshipped. And, of course, there's child sacrifice. We see this in the scriptures. We see this in in, in the literature. Uh, The god Molech, who uh, the Canaanites sacrificed children to, there's a little short description of this in Clay Jones's uh, paper on this. He says this, and this is actually a pretty tame description when you read through some of the literature on this. Molech was a Canaanite underworld deity represented as an upright, bull-headed idol with human body in whose belly a fire was stoked and in whose outstretched arms a child was placed that would be burned to death. 
It was not just unwanted children who were sacrificed. Plutarch reports that during the Phoenician sacrifices, the whole area before the statue was filled with a loud noise of flutes and drums so that the cries of the wailing should not reach the ears of the people. And it was not just infants. Children as old as four were sacrificed. And the descriptions that you read on that are just unspeakable. And so this is the historical context. This, the, these are the surrounding Canaanite nations that Israel finds itself in. Okay? So it's important to, under, to, to, to put it in its historical context. Now we can go back to Scripture with a proper understanding of this historical context and look at what, how, how Scripture helps us to understand what's going on. So this is where we need to open our Bible. So I'm going to encourage you to take your Bible right now, and I want you to open to the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy chapter 9. And what we're going to do is we're going to take these commands in Deuteronomy 7 and elsewhere and, 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 and figure out how do we make sense of them. Well, I think the historical context helps us to make sense of them. And uh, what we find in Deuteronomy chapter 9 helps us to understand what the purpose of this was. Okay, so why God's command? Well, in Deuteronomy chapter 9, verses 4 through 5, here's what we read. After the Lord your God has driven them out before you, do not say to yourself, the Lord has brought me here to take possession of this land because of my righteousness. No, it is on account of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is going to drive them out before you. It is not because of your righteousness or your integrity that you are going in to take possession of their land, but on account of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God will drive them out before you. So here's the first insight, I think, from Scripture, that number one, this was not a a genocidal maniac, but instead the conquest was an exercise of divine capital punishment. And the capital punishment was on a national scale. It was punishment for hundreds and hundreds of years of idolatry and unthinkable evil that's perpetrated on generation after generation after generation. In fact, think about it. We just kind of took a little snapshot, but we could spend a lot of time really unpacking that and, 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 and thinking through all the implications. I mean, think about a culture like that where such wickedness is practiced, and think about what is done to the children in that culture. Not just from being exposed to it, but what is, what is done to them, right? And think about how, the perpetu- how that per- perpetuates just unspeakable evil. And so, uh, so, this is, so what God is saying here is not because of Israel's righteousness that he gives these commands, but it's because of the wickedness of these nations that he wants them driven out. In fact, God is an equitable God, a just God, and he brings that same sentence of destruction on his own people, on Israel, when they sin in like manner, which we'll see later. So I think the question, sometimes, you know, we, so we look at this, we look at Deuteronomy 7 and we go, gosh, how could God do that? And I think when you understand the whole historical context, it seems to me to change the question to how could God not do something? Such evil and wickedness, how could God, God not step in? Is there not a limit? And in fact, sometimes isn't that our objection, right? We say, God, why didn't you do something? Why didn't you step in? 
Where, you know, we ask the question, where was God? Uh, and, uh, uh, and here's a situation when God does act, and I think we can argue that it was just, and we are quick to find fault with God as a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, right? So, so which is it? But, um, and let's clarify that this is capital punishment on a national scale. It is not genocide, as often the skeptic wants to argue. Now think about it. What we have to do is we have to define genocide. What is genocide? Genocide is the deliberate and systematic destruction of a racial, political, or cultural group. So genocide or ethnic cleansing, when we use those terms, when the skeptic uses those terms... They communicate something very negative, maybe bring up negative emotions, but they don't describe Israel's history, history accurately. For, this was not God commanding the Israelites to wipe out a nation based upon its ethnic identity. But the command is given based upon the absolute wickedness of the culture. And so that's one of the first insights here, I think, that we can... At, at, so what it helps us to see is that at the very least, if we're going to be fair-minded, at the very least, there's an argument here that God is just in his actions in dishing out a certain punishment for the amount of wickedness. Now, we have to take that, and we also have to balance it with what else we see in the Old Testament. So I want you to turn to Genesis chapter 15. And in Genesis chapter 15, we're going to find a second insight that helps us to, to put this in proper context. So Genesis chapter 15, starting in verse 13, and we'll read through verse 16. Genesis 15, 13 through 16. And this is what it says. Then the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your offspring will be be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterward, they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So what do we find in this passage? God actually holds back his hand of judgment for how long? 400 years. Their wickedness had not reached a point of intolerability, and God is actually patient and long-suffering for 400 years, tolerating that, that kind of evil. And so he even allows, think about it, he even allows his people Israel to languish in slavery and wandering through the desert before the Canaanite people uh, have reached the point of no return where their judgment then is uh, deserved. And so what we see here is, a, is actually a picture of God's patience with wickedness and sin. Uh, his, his merciful hand that holds back the judgment. Now, when, they're, uh, when the Amorites' iniquity is complete, right, we see the, the fullness of their, their, their wickedness. Um, what does it look like? Well, it looks like all those things that we just talked about. Now, turn to Genesis 18, because this, I think, is another, just another illustration of the same point where we see God's patience even in the face of great wickedness. Genesis 18, and uh, we're going to look at verse 20, and this is a story that maybe many of us who've grown up in church, we've heard this before. It's the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, right? 
Um, And so in verse 20, we read this. Then the Lord said, the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great and their sin so grievous, which we have a picture of now, that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. And then it goes on. It says, the men turned away toward Sodom, but Abraham remained standing before the Lord. Right? And then what does Abraham do? He pleads with the Lord. Then Abraham approached him and said, will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you really sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous people in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? So he pleads with God, right, and makes this bargain. Hey, if you can find 50 righteous people, what happens? What's God's response? Well, the Lord said, If I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. What's that? That's an act of mercy, isn't it? That's an act of patience. That's an act of kindness. And the bargain continues because Abraham, of course, we know as the rest of the story goes on, he's not able to find the 50. He's not even able to find 10. And uh, and then God pours out uh, his judgment. And so what we see here, here's a second insight. So there's an act of capital punishment, but before... God even brings that judgment upon the Canaanite people. What is there? There's, there's grace. There's mercy. There's long-suffering. There's patience. Even for 400 years. Okay. All right. Now, here's a third biblical insight. We've got to ter- turn to Deuteronomy chapter 20 for this. Deuteronomy chapter 20, that gives a little more context for uh, the, the biblical commands that we see here. And uh, in Deuteronomy 20, we're going to see, I think, an important distinction that we're just going to touch on. But I want to lay this out as an example. Deuteronomy chapter 20, verses 10, 11, and 12. And what we see in this passage are general instructions for Israel during warfare. And it's important to distinguish between the general instructions that God gave Israel for warfare and the specific instructions it gave for the Canaanite conquest. And so you have in, in, in verse 10... When you march up to attack a city, make its people an offer of peace. Okay, so there's an offer of peace. Now, again, remember, even that may offend modern sensibilities, reading that, but remember the violent context. Remember, the ancient Near East is a place of violence and warfare, okay? Um, Verse 11, if they accept and open their gates, all the people in it shall be subject to forced labor and shall work for you. If they refuse to make peace and they engage you in battle, they siege to that city. So notice even here, God is, giving, is making some provision. It's not that God is commanding Israel to go and to just indiscriminately wipe out everyone. All right, but there is a, a place here to offer uh, terms of peace. Now, of course, this passage also brings up another challenge, which would be the issue of slavery, right? And I thought when, when, when I talked to Dave about first doing this, I thought, okay, we're going to hit on kind of this genocide claim. We're going to hit on slavery. We're going to hit on misogyny in the Old Testament. We're going to answer all of them. And then we, I started getting into the prep for this, and I was like, okay, we can only hit one. All right, so I'll give you some resources for the other, because I think these other challenges can be answered uh, well as well, and 
key to it is understanding the context. In fact, let me give you a resource on this. Um, this is uh, Paul Copan. He's a, uh, a friend. He's a philosopher at West Palm, Beach, uh, West Palm Beach Atlantic University in Florida. A brilliant guy, but just such a good man, a man of integrity, just a kind, gentle guy, but smart. Wrote a book called, Is God a Moral Monster? Making Sense of the Old Testament God. And if you want a good resource on all of these issues, get his book. He covers the issue of misogyny. He covers the issue of slavery. He covers uh, the Canaanite issue and other issues as well. And it's very thorough. Like, hey, we got 45 minutes or so. We're just scratching the surface here, okay? Uh, But his book will take it to deeper uh, waters there. But one of the things that Paul points out, and I can, I'm only going to be able to mention this for sake of time, but he also says we've got to look at the literary context. We have to look at the genre or the type of literature this is. And what we're dealing with, what we see a parallel, is in ancient Near East uh, uh, warfare texts. Uh, writings that talk about warfare and the rhetoric they use is the, the rhetoric of hy- uh, hyperbole and exaggeration. And so he says, you've got to look at the kind of the, 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 um, the literature surrounding the, in the context that Israel is writing in and the, the Hebrew authors are writing in, and they seem to employ this. Now, uh, not in every single passage would we, we say this applies, but certainly there seem to be some clear passages where they're using the literary devices of the surrounding culture to communicate this kind of hyperbolic or exaggerated uh, you know, kind of language. It, it, for us, as moderns, we would understand it by like reading the sports page, right? You read the sports page, and it may say something like, uh, USC annihilated UCLA, Okay. Um, now, when you read that, you don't think, oh my gosh, I guess all the USC players just, you know, killed, uh, slit the throats of all the UCLA players or something like that. We, we, we realize that's hyperbolic language. It's an, over an exaggeration to kind of, you know, demonstrate, oh yeah, this team killed the other team in terms of the scoreboard. And so, uh, uh, Copan plays this out and he points to something like Joshua 10, verses 40 through 42 as an example of this. And here you have an example of kind of this hyperbolic language where in the very following verses you can see it's, it's, it's got to be exaggeration because it talks about wiping people out, but they're still there. So Joshua struck the whole land, the hill country, and the Negev, and the lowland, and the slopes, and all their kings. He left none remaining, but devoted to destruction all that breathed, just as the Lord God of Israel commanded. And Joshua struck them from Kadesh, Barnea, as far as Gaza, and all the country of Goshen, as far as Gibeon. But then we see in verse 42, And Joshua captured all these kings and their land at one time, because the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. And so some of the explanation could be that you've got hyperbolic language here, where it's often, it's not that there's a wiping out of entire civilization, because you see Canaanites still around, but that it's enemy combatants and it's hyperbolic language that's being used. Um, and that you'll have to read Paul uh, for, for more of an explanation on that. Okay, let me say one last thing before we wrap this up. There's also the redemptive context. So for those of us who are followers of Jesus, who think that the, the Bible is the authoritative word of God, there is a story that's being played out through the pages of scripture, right? And we often divide that into those four key chapters of, of God's history of the world, creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. 
And so where do we find the nation of Israel? We find the nation of Israel shortly after the fall, right? And when we read the first, uh, uh, the first part of Genesis, we discover how, how bad the fall is, right? How rebellious and how wicked humanity becomes. And so this is the, the context. But then what happens? What is God trying to do? Well, he covenants with Abraham in Genesis 12, right? The Abrahamic covenant, to do what? To bless all the peoples of the world. And he uses Israel in that plan. And this, then, when we understand the redemptive context, it helps us to make sense of things that, at first glance, look really odd and weird to us. Some of these ceremonial laws that we don't understand. But we know what God is trying to do when we look at this whole story. He's trying to set apart a people. And so much of what he's trying to do is set them apart so that they can actually be a light in a really dark world. Now, what happens? What happens? Israel blows it, don't they? In fact, Israel, you could say, is Canaanized, right? They end up uh, uh, falling away. And so we see then God's continuing story culminating in the work, uh, the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. But uh, really, Israel's history kind of, what uh, we see in Judges where it, we, we kind of get left is this, this sad place, right? And what we find in Judges is chapter 3, verses 5 through 7, we find what the Israelites do. God's given all this warning. He's tried to do all this protecting. He sends prophets. But what do the Israelites do? The Israelites lived among the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, and Jebusites. They took their daughters in marriage and gave their own daughters to their sons and served their gods. The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asherahs. And then at the very final chapter, chapter 21, the book ends with this single verse. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. Or some translations render that. Everyone did as they saw uh, fit in their own eyes. They did what was right in their own eyes. And that's it. That's the end of the book. Right? It's just kind of sobering picture of what happens to Israel. And so then they experience the judgment that God reserves for wickedness. So all of that scratches the surface. (laughs) But what I think it helps us to do is to put this in proper perspective. That there are some reasonable explanations for what we see in the Old Testament. Now, let me give you a couple resources and then we'll wrap this up. Here's a a resource. Okay. Uh, If you go to our website, uh, it's just Maven Truth. Our organization's Maven. But if you go to maventruth.com, what I've done is at the, the top of the page, there's a link that says free resources. And if you click on that link, you'll find a number of resources. But I put up, uh, I believe, three things related to this talk. I put up Clay Jones's article there. I put up an article by Paul Copan. If you don't want to start with the book, start with his article. But then I also took all of my slides with my corresponding notes, and I uploaded that too. Okay? And then Grace will put this talk on the website, because I know it's a lot to soak in at once, right? So we'll have the audio of this as well so that you could go back and review some of this. So that's on the website. You can get that. If you want to dive deeper into this, I would suggest one of two books. Either get Paul's book, Is God a Moral Monster? Or one that I think is pretty readable. And not pretty. It's very readable. 
is The God I Don't Understand by Christopher Wright. And he has a couple chapters dealing with this Canaanite issue and other issues as well. Okay, that was a lot. <laughs> and now you're thinking, okay, yeah, how, how do we apply this? Right? Like, what's the application here? Um, don't do all that bad stuff? Okay, let's, <laughs> let's pray. We're done, right? No, actually, okay, so I, I, I spent a lot of time thinking, well, what are the implications for us as New Testament believers? Uh, what are the implications of this? And often in the Old Testament, the very first thing that we want to look for is what the Old Testament narratives reveal about God. And so there are four, I, four questions I want us to think through here. Number one, I think this confronts us with the question, what is your view about God? What is your view of God? Who do you think God really is? And do you have a God who has revealed himself to us in his fullness in Scripture? Or is your view of God really a God made in your own image or my own image or in the image of our culture? See, we don't get to make God in our image. We take God as he is. And he's revealed himself. And he's revealed himself as a God of perfect love and mercy and grace and forgiveness. And he's also revealed himself as a God who is just and holy and righteous. Do we hold both those things? We see, and, and, and those who argue that the, somehow the Old Testament is inconsistent on this, I would just say, I don't think you've read the Old Testament very well. Because you see things like Exodus 34, 6 through 7. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. There's the loving God. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. And there's the just God as well, right? And I love the way that, that C.S. Lewis in his literature captures this, right? With Aslan, the Christ figure. Aslan is not a tame lion. The God of the universe is not a tame God. And so I think that's the first question. What is our view of God? And does the Old Testament confront and maybe correct our view of God. Here's the second question. Do we really read the entire Bible? If you think that the God of the Old Testament is radically different than the God of the New Testament, I would suggest read the Bible. Read it again, because what we find when we read Scripture is, number one, the Old Testament has as much to say about the love and compassion of God as the New Testament. Number two, the New Testament has as much to say about the anger and judgment of God as the Old Testament. Yes, Jesus, meek and mild, spoke a lot about eternal punishment. And number three, Jesus and the New Testament, New Testament authors do not reject and are not embarrassed by the Old Testament. And so we must go back and read the entire scripture and let the scripture form our views, views and not the culture. And that's really the, the third question. Do we recognize the culture's influence on our very views? How does the culture we live in shape our Christianity? How does 
Orange County culture shape our approach to God? Do we recognize the culture's influence? And so the culture is overly individualistic. So therefore, maybe that's why we, can't, we have a, a tough time conceiving of something like corporate judgment on a nation. Right? Because we're so individualistic and we're all about our individual rights. And we are a culture that's, that's so oriented around pleasure. Satisfying our pleasurable desires is like the highest good in American culture. And so therefore, God and his punishment and requiring things of me, these seem so foreign because God really exists to satisfy me, doesn't he? And our culture is so relativistic, right, in its morality. And what I, I, the relativism of our culture dulls our moral convictions, and therefore, we rationalize that which is evil in God's sight. I mean, could it be? Could it be that American culture, there are pockets of American culture that actually reflect Canaanite culture more than we, we think? I mean, what's going on in the news? The whole Epstein thing. The, the, the sexual wickedness. Oh, we, we, those barbarians, they sacrifice children. Well, there might be a case to be made that we do the same thing in American culture. How does the culture influence us? And we might say, oh, well, we don't, and we don't participate in those kind of things. Well, I don't know. What do we watch? What are the things that we're watching? What are those things celebrating? And we just participate, it, participate in it with all of our friends. Right? So I think we're, we're, we're confronted. And I think then, the, finally, we're confronted with this last question. I think this is the biggest thing that I took away from this, uh, this study and the prep was, do we take our sin as seriously as God does? Do we take our sin as seriously as God does? When was the last time we really spent time taking stock of the sin in our own lives and then mourning over it. When was the last time I looked into my heart and I recognized, yeah, there is wickedness here. See, Scripture doesn't just identify the threat as external. That, that's how we do it. We look, well, that's evil, that's bad. Look at those people. Oh, I can't believe that. Scripture identifies the main threat as internal. Jeremiah seventeen nine: the heart is deceitful more than anything else. Who can know it? That's my heart. That's your heart. Do we take our sin as seriously as God does? Here's what Clay Jones closes his article with on the Canaanites. He says this, We do not appreciate the depths of our own depravity, the horror of sin, and the righteousness of God. Consequently, it is no surprise that when we see God's judgment upon those who committed the sins we commit, that complaint and protest arises within our hearts. Right? God hates sin. Do we hate sin as well? And all of that, of course, points us. That harsh stuff points us what? It ultimately points us to the need for God's grace, doesn't it? In fact, I think that when we understand God's holiness and his justice and his righteousness and his wrath more fully. Only then can we understand his grace 
and his love and his unspeakable mercy more fully. Human depravity points us to the absolute need for the cross of Jesus Christ. Every one of us, the Canaanite and me. And that is the good news of the gospel. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for your word, which does not shy away from the difficult conversations. Thank you that you have revealed yourself to us in all of your glory. And we pray, Father, that you would humble us and help us to see your magnificence and your glory and who you are and worship you on your terms, not ours. Father, we need your help. Thank you for the Holy Spirit who helps us. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.